Love with like purpose and sacrifice. Love un unapologetically and like giving someone ultimate grace. Love with complete forgiveness. Don't hold bitterness. Well, I believe that loving like Jesus takes more than just talking about it. For me, like as an atheist, just like, I don't know the whole story, but from like the few things I do know from books and movies, to love like Jesus is kind of like um, looking at the person and loving them despite of the sins and try to like guide them towards like a better position. When you hear the phrase love like Jesus, what do you think that means? To me, I feel like that means just love unconditionally just kind of give everybody that same amount of like love and respect that I feel like Jesus would have. To be fair with everyone, to treat someone like you can treat anyone else. Give people chances, maybe second chances, third chances like Jesus would do. Love like Jesus is just something that can go for everyone. Be compassionate for the ones around you. Good morning. Great to have you here. Do want to welcome our online audience. Great to have you as well. I don't know if you know this, uh, but every single weekend we have roughly the same amount of people in person at all of our locations as we do online every single week. And so whether you join us in person, whether you join us online, uh, you are a part of the Willow family and we're ecstatic that you are here this morning. Now, we are continuing a series we've been in for the last few weeks that's called Love Like Jesus. And it's kind of this idea that, that our world just tries to get us to choose sides. And our response to that is we just want to be a church that loves like Jesus. And so if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that this, this series was really built on the foundation of these powerful words that are recorded for us uh, that come off the pen of the prophet Micah. In, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says this. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. So basically, like God has shown his people what is good. And then he asks this question, and what does the Lord require of us? And so we boil it all down to really what really matters most. What does the Lord require of us? And then Micah responds, here's what it is. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so for the last three weeks, we focus on each one of those three pieces. If you're with us, you kind of been tracking with us. And what we've basically been saying is that, that this love like Jesus is built on this three-legged stool. You can't just have one of these pillars. You can't just have two of them. In order to really love like Jesus, all three of these things form the foundation by which we stand on. And so it really starts with acting justly. And so week one of this series, I thought Pastor Dave did an amazing job talking about really what it means for us to be a people of God that is committed to doing what is right. And not just doing what is right, but you really lean into the heart of God, recognizing that God's heart tends to really bend for those who are most vulnerable, who are most marginalized, who are most at risk. And so if we really want to be a people who are doing what is right, we are acting justly on the behalf of the most vulnerable trying to uh, make equitable the things that are not equitable. It's, it's really close to the heart of God. It, it's part of what matters most. But we want to be people that don't just act justly, but in doing so, also be a people who love mercy. That we don't want to just be a people who just angrily fight for justice, but how we go about it really matters. 
And so if you think about who Jesus was, he was always full of compassion, incredibly empathetic, heartbreaking over the things that break God's heart. That's who Jesus is. And so it's not okay to just have one and not the other. We want to do what is right, but do what is right with compassion. Do what is right with mercy. And then last week, our campus pastors kind of wrapped up at least this part of the series where they talked about what it looks like to walk humbly. Again, I think it's the third pillar that really matters a lot. It's one thing to act justly and to love mercy, but if we're not walking humbly with God, the challenge is it's possible to do a lot of great things, but not do a lot of great things in the name of God. Or do a lot of great things, but do it with such arrogance that it almost causes the world to respond with repulsiveness. That, that it's not just one of these things that it takes to love like Jesus. It's not two of these things what it means to love like Jesus. If we really want to be a people who love like Jesus, it's about doing all three. It's about acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly. So that's the first part of this series. Now our hope is that the first part of this series in many sense serves as the foundation for this next part of our series. And so as we think about this next part of our series, we tended to choose a few things that, that have a little tension to them in our cultural context. And what happens typically in our cultural context around things that have some tension or maybe some conflict to them, uh, we tend to respond, or, or people tend to respond maybe with some, fo some form of divisiveness, some form of aggression, but oftentimes we don't always love like Jesus. So our hope is, that the first part of this series informs the second part of the series. And so in the second part of the series, what we've done is we've chosen a theological issue, a political issue, and also a social issue. And our heart is, as we approach these tension-filled subjects, can we stand on the foundation of what it looks like to love like Jesus? That we respond to tension-filled moments Standing on the foundation, what it means to love like Jesus. Now, part of me, I love to stand on this because I'm built like a hobbit, and now I feel tall. This is amazing. <laughs> but part of the reason we stand on this is now we're standing on the pillars of what Jesus said was most important. Now, we didn't choose the most controversial topics out there. But our hope is, no matter what the topic is, if we can stand on this foundation, it will serve us as we interact with these various things. So for example, I think about it this way. Uh, I'm a parent to a high, school, uh, a high school boy. Now as I think about my high schooler, I can't be in every single situation, every single conversation, every single decision that he makes. So my job as a parent is to help him frame up paradigms, give him filters, ways to think about it. I'm trying to teach him how to act and teach him how to respond in any and every situation. This series is designed in the same way. We won't cover every controversial topic out there, but if we can lean into the paradigm, it will serve us in any situation, in every situation, no matter what it is and where we find ourselves in. So today we're going to tackle one that's a little bit more theological in nature. Again, not the most controversial topic out there, but one that's got a little bit of tension to it. Here's where I first ran across the tension. Uh, it was years ago, Lindsay and I, we were hosting a small group in our home. And uh, we, we've done this for years and years. We love hosting small groups. There's nothing like transformative biblical community. We love it. And if we can just play a small role in creating an environment where that can play out, Lindsay and I love it. So we've hosted small groups for years and years and years. I remember one small group that we were a part of, there was a, a couple that was there that I would either, either say they were brand new to the faith 
or maybe they had not yet crossed the line of faith. I'm not really sure. At the same time, they were so real, so raw when it came to their spiritual questions. I loved that they were part of the group. I love when people show up that they're not quite sure, they're comfortable enough to go ahead and express their doubts and their questions. There's something about that that just feels so genuine and authentic. And so they were always asking the hard questions that nobody else was asking. They were always pushing on things that nobody else was pushing on, and I loved having them a part of this group. But I remember one week, they, they held me afterwards. They said, can I talk to you for minutes, a few minutes after the group was done? And I said, you know, absolutely. And so we started having this conversation in, in, in almost the place that you could feel the tension inside of them. They said, is Jesus really the only way? I mean, that feels so exclusive. With so many people, in so many cultures, in so many religious paradigms, are we really saying that Jesus is the only way? And for them, that was a tension-filled theological issue. And maybe it is for some of us who are here today, this kind of tension-filled theological issue. Because we live in this pluralistic society that really believes you can own your own truth as long as your truth doesn't infringe on somebody else, right? And so we're okay with, with this, this culture of, that has a high value of tolerance. That is the world in which we live. And so leaning into a claim like that of Jesus can come across as somewhat offensive in the cultural dynamics that we lean into. But that was the predominant question they asked, that, that is Jesus really the only way? And if he is, that feels so radically exclusive. My hope and prayer that as the, we dive into this conversation today, we can dive in to say, what, what is right? How do we dive into what is right with some compassion? And how do we also infuse it with humility? I think in doing so, we'll discover that the claims of Jesus are by far the most inclusive claims you could ever imagine. Now, we're going to take this conversation to a couple places in Scripture, uh, but for the sake of anchoring it somewhere, I want to anchor it in the most clear place that Jesus speaks to this issue in the book of John chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to John chapter 14. Again, we'll be a couple of other places, but it's a great place to start. If you'd like to look it up on your, your phone or tablet, you just go to the Bible app, the YouVersion app, you can look up John 14, or if you'd like to follow along with the words on the screen, that is fine as well. Now, in John 14, we, we come to what is what we now know as the day before Jesus was crucified. Uh, this conversation was happening at the, the meal that we call the Last Supper. Jesus was about to go to the garden. He was about to be arrested. Again, his life would come to an end physically on this earth just 24 hours from this conversation. Here's what he says to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And so basically what he's saying is, your world's about to get flipped upside down. Like in a way that you, you don't even know it, but, but when your heart feels troubled, don't give up on believing in God and don't giving up believing on me. And so here's what he says next. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Now, looking back now, we now know that Jesus was talking about heaven, that again, he was about to be crucified. We know uh, through what the, the eyewitness accounts told us that he ultimately resurrected, ascended. We know now that what he's talking about is heaven. 
that, that he was going to prepare this place, that, that God's people would come and live eternally with him in heaven. But at the time, I would imagine that the disciples were scratching their head going, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? They still had the perspective that Jesus was going to be an earthly king, that he was eventually going to beat the whoopee out of the Romans, that he was going to set up this, this earthly king, and Jesus wasn't going to do that. Instead, he's talking about these spiritual realities, these eternal realities, these heavenly realities. It had to have been confusing for his disciples. And so then they, that's why they respond in this way. Or Jesus says this, he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And I'm going, Jesus, they probably don't. Like they, it's probably not at the tip of their mind, the tip of their tongue, particularly in this moment. Now, thankfully, uh, Thomas who we now sometimes describe doubting Thomas. I hate that we call him doubting Thomas. That feels negative. I, I think it's like authentic Thomas. Thomas was the guy that said what everybody else was thinking, which I, I think is incredibly refreshing. And so here's what Thomas said. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Jesus, we don't have a clue. We don't know where you're going. And so because we don't know you're going, how could we possibly know the way? I love the honesty of the question. Jesus, you have confused all of us. We don't quite understand it. And if we don't know where you're going, how can we possibly know the way? And Jesus says, you do know the way because you know me. Here's the response. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is this jam-packed, amazing statement of Jesus. Uh, we could talk a lot about even how Jesus started the statement with the phrase, I am. It's one of seven times in the book of John that he uses these I am statements. Most would connect it to the name of God back in the book of Exodus, calling on the very name of God himself when God revealed himself to Moses at that bush, and he says, I am, right? And so this could, you, you could say that this is a divine claim of Jesus, and I would agree. But I think what's more interesting about this particular passage is when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What Jesus was doing is plucking something out of their spiritual culture that they would have known. If you were a Jewish person in first century Jerusalem, here's what you would have known. You would have heard something to be called the way and the truth and the life. Because in the first century Judaism, they believed that the Torah was the way the Torah was the truth, the Torah was the life. Now what's the Torah? The Torah very specifically was the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But more kind of symbolically, the Torah was representative of the law. This was God's guidelines, God's expectations, God's commandments. And they believed that God's commandments were the way. God's commandments were the truth. In God's commandments, there was life. I mean, here's the reality. Sometimes the law gets a bad rap as we look back on it, but the truth is, initially, out of the gates, when God revealed the law to his people, it was an amazing, amazing moment of grace. Because it was through the law that, that, that God revealed who he was. It was through the law that God uh, reflected his desire to be related to his people. It was through the law that God communicated his expectations for his people and how they were to live. The law, initially, was an incredible grace. An amazing grace that God revealed himself to his people. Here's the challenge. Over the course of time, there is the, there's a drift. And oftentimes in religious system, there becomes this drift. 
that over the course of time, religious people, religious leaders even more specifically, end up prioritizing the commandments of God over the people made in God's image. And over the course of time, almost believing that the commands of God are more important than the people of God. Can I be as clear with you as I know how? God loves you more than God loves his commandments. He always has, he always will. That God didn't create people so that he would have somebody to obey his commandments. God actually created his commandments in such a way that they would serve his people. And and it's very easy to get that backwards. But Jesus was emphatic about it, and he would even speak to specific, very specific commandments, and he would say things like, the Sabbath was, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Do you feel what he's saying? That the priority is the people, not the commands. Now again, religious leaders, myself included at times, have often misprioritized these types of things, and Jesus was very quick to remind people particularly religious leaders, when they over-prioritized God's commands over God's people, they were on the wrong side of God. Because God actually loves his people more than his commands. Why does all this matter? Here's why this matters. Because every world religion out there, including first century Judaism, every world religion out there says that the way, the truth, and the life is through some sort of obedience to some sort of law, command, or participation in some ritual. Every single one. They know they have different rules, they have different rituals, they have different laws, but every single world religion can be defined in, in this way. That if you want to know the way, it's defined by one word. Do. It's about what you do. It's about the commands that you follow, it's about the laws that you adhere to, it's about the rituals that you participate in, and your ability to do that to the highest level of effectiveness will determine if your life gets to experience the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the challenge. How do you ever measure if what you've done is good enough? It would almost be like this. Imagine uh, some of you you are in sales. Imagine your direct report, your manager comes to you and says, this is a big month, that your job is on the line depending on whether or not you can hit your sales quota for this month. You're like, all right, what's my quota? And they say, I'm not telling you. Imagine that scenario. My job's on the line based on my ability to hit a bar that I don't know where the bar's at. That that, that creates an impossibility to know even how I can possibly ever get to the end, spiritually speaking. If my spiritual whole life is defined by what I do and I don't know where the bar is, how will I ever know that I can actually get to God? And every world religion out there defines the paradigm of the way is based on the word do. Here's what sets Christianity apart. Christianity is not defined by what you do. Christianity is defined by a different word, done. Because it's not based on who you are and what you do, it's actually based on who he is and what he has done for you. 
What God says is, I love you even more than our commands. And what Jesus says is, if you want to know the way, the way is not a set of propositions. The way is a person. It's why I would say that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship of the one who came to save us. He came to save us from a reality that we would never be able to clear that bar. He came to save us from the reality that we would never be good enough on our own. And so instead, he met the sales quota for us and offers us life in him. The Torah is not the way. It's not the truth. It's not the life. He is the way. He's the truth. It's actually in Jesus that you and I can find life. Here's the beauty. Is that the way is defined, the way is defined by someone who loves us, not the propositions that condemn us. And my friends, that is the most freeing, grace-filled reality that God has established for your life and for mine. Now, if Jesus' claim is true, like if he really is the way, the truth, and the life, it does cause us to wrestle with a couple of key questions. Uh, here's the question number one. Again, it came off the lips of the people who were in my small group a few years ago. They said, like, if Jesus really is the way, is Jesus' claim exclusive? I would argue that only, not only is Jesus' claim not exclusive, it's actually the most inclusive claim that one could ever possibly imagine. Here's how I think about it. Imagine I was in a really rough spot. I mean, imagine I was like, I'd fallen on really hard times. I, I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. I didn't have any shelter over my head. And truly, if I didn't find a solution, a fine solution fast, my, my very survival is, is, is at risk. Like, I'm in a really tough spot. And imagine that at some point in the journey, Somebody took me to a place where every need that I ever met was, was, was met before me. I, I, I went to a place and I finally had a roof over my head. And not just some food, there was a smorgasbord like no other smorgasbord. There was a river running with Dr. Pepper in this place. And I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Pepper is the sweat, sweet nectar of Jesus. And so, I mean, this is a pretty amazing place, right? This place has, has everything that I could have ever imagined, everything that I could have ever wanted, everything that I could have ever needed. I, it, it, it's here in this place. Now the question is, with this newfound experience in my life, the question is, what do I do with it? Because when I was in this place of just being completely destitute, I wasn't alone here. There, there were dozens and dozens of other people in the same place. And so the question becomes, I've now found something that has changed my ever-loving life and existence. What do I now do with that information? Now, if I know that it's over here, but I tell dozens of people, hey, I want to show you something over here. And I point somebody in the wrong direction where they will not experience truth and life abundance. What would you call that? Deceptive? Mean? I don't know what we call it, right? That would be incredibly exclusive to point somebody in the wrong way where at the end of the journey, their needs are still not met. They're still left wanting. Imagine a different scenario. Imagine again, I, I know it's over there, but I only wanted to tell like two or three people. 
I know there's a whole river of Dr. Pepper, but I really like my Dr. Pepper, and I kind of just wanted it for me. I didn't really want it for everybody, so I told two or three people to take along with me, but everybody else I kind of left in the dark. What would you call that? I would call that incredibly exclusive, right? Because there's a few insiders I'm going to let in, but everybody else, like I'm going to leave you completely out. The most inclusive thing would be to say to anybody and everybody that's ever had a need, everybody come this way. I mean, everything that you've ever wanted and dreamed about life, everything's there. You got a roof over your head, you got a smorgasbord. I mean, there's Dr. Pepper for days, it's amazing. And if I included anybody and everybody in that particular experience, what would you call that? That's inclusivity, right? It's when all are invited to the table. That is what it means to be inclusive. Here's the beautiful thing. The beautiful thing about the heart of God is that he has created a scenario where every need that we've ever had will be met in the person of Jesus. And so he doesn't want us pointing people to a different place that would take them away and and, and not ever experience the fullness of what we have in Christ. He he doesn't want us to be exclusive and just kind of hold the truth to a couple few. Instead, God wants to swing the doors as wide open as possible and let everybody know that all are welcome at his table. Look what it says uh, a little bit later in Scripture, the book of 2 Peter. Again, Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus. He said this. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Did you see the, the language that Peter used to describe? He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to experience what life is like in Jesus. It is the most inclusive reality imagined. In other words, what Jesus says, I want you to bring everybody to the table. Young people, old people, rich people, poor people. People who are night owls and early risers. People who are marathoners and couch potatoes. People who are dog lovers I don't know about cat lovers, honestly. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, right? God is so gracious that even cat lovers, you know, they get a, they get a seat at the table. And the truth is, all people are invited to the table. The truth is about Jesus, God opens up the door to anybody and everybody to receive the free gift that God has done on behalf of his people because God loves people even more than God's commandments. God loves his people so much that he sent a person so that we could actually have access to God, not through a set of propositions, but through a person that radically loves us. Do you understand how inclusive God is being and what he's made available to us in Jesus? all people of all times. And so I would argue that God is being incredibly inclusive in Christ. But I think there's another question we have to wrestle with. And here's the question, is Jesus' claim unfair? Because some of us, if we're honest and we're wrestling with it, we might say, well, there are people who live in parts of the world that don't have access to a Bible. They don't even know a Christian. They, there's no church for them to go to. I mean, how would they ever get connected to God through Jesus? Doesn't that feel a little unfair that some are given more of an advantage of other people? It's an honest question. It's a very candid question. But can I share with you what I fundamentally believe about the character of God? 
I believe there's a God who's loved every person he's ever created. Our creator loves what he has created. And it doesn't matter where somebody lives, what zip code they find themselves in, what language they speak, what their growing up years look like, that God loves anybody and everybody. That's always been true, it is true, and always will be true. That's just who God is. I'm also convinced on a God who is consistently revealing himself to people, regardless whether they have access to a Christian, a Bible, or a church in the area they live. Now, Scripture kind of points this a little bit in the, in the book of Romans. Look, look at this incredibly powerful verse in Romans chapter 1. It says this. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, but being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, some theologians would use this kind of fancy-pantsy word, and they would, they would describe this as kind of God's general revelation. That the God generally reveals himself to all people, no matter where they live, no matter what their background is, no matter what their religious affiliation might look like. That even through things like creation, God is making himself known to people. You look elsewhere in the Bible, you see that God reveals himself in either other ways. You know, God will reveal himself in dreams to people. God will reveal himself in, 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 in a myriad of ways to people. That even if people don't have access to a Christian or a Bible or a church, I fundamentally believe that God is still actively at work in that person's life. That God is constantly trying to draw people into relationship with himself. It kind of reminds me of the, the childhood game that, the, that we all played growing up. How many of you played hide and seek at some point in your life? Okay. Some of you didn't. I really feel sorry for your, your childhood. But, but it's, it's a really amazing game, let me tell you about it. You know, one, one person decides they'll be the seeker, everybody else hides somewhere. And I'll sometimes feel like, in some regards, you know, our, our spiritual journeys are, are similar to that. But just so we're really clear, God is never the one hiding from us. God is always the one who's seeking out a relationship with every single person on planet earth. I believe that God is always consistently at work. Now, I don't know how you played this game growing up, but, but the way I played it, basically at some point in the game, maybe when a few people were found, the seeker could eventually yell the phrase, Ali, Ali, oxen free. When they did that, what happened? Hey, you guys really didn't play this game. I'm really sorry. I'm really sad for you. But, but when I played this game, when the, when the person said this, what happens, those who were still hiding, they came out of hiding and they went back home. I think in, in many ways, I see God in a similar way. God is the seeker. And just so we're all clear, God is, God is not clueless to where we're hiding. It's not as though he doesn't know where we're at. But I think there's moments, I don't think he uses the phrase Ali Ali oxen free, but I think that there are moments that God calls us home. Calls us home to his forgiveness. God calls us home to his love. God calls us home to the life that we can have in him. I believe that God is always at work in people's lives. Now being able to experience this in a couple of ways, I'd love to share a couple stories. One is, is actually from my current Rooted group. I'm, I'm one of the almost 3,000 people across all of our locations that are participating in Rooted right now. I love it, it's been an amazing experience. So I'm, I have the chance to help facilitate one of our groups and I'm a little biased, but my group is the best Rooted group that we have. They're great. 
Now, one of my favorite things within Rooted right now is the chance to lean into people's stories. For those of you in Rooted, you know that we, we take the chance to, to hear people's stories. It is, it is remarkable to hear how God's fingerprints have been over people's lives, you know, throughout their journeys. Well, there was one woman in our group who shared her story. I got her permission to, to share her story with you. But she grew up uh, with, with, it, uh, with, with Indian parents. Uh, she spent some time in India. She's also spent some time in the States. Uh, actually growing up, they popped back and forth, but, but their, their family was a Hindu family. And so she can recall uh, all the different things that, that she was a part of growing up from uh, the going to temple at times to participating in certain rituals. She remembers the golden statues, the idols around her house. She remembers praying to all the various gods that are prayed to as a part of that particular faith. Now, if you fast forward her story, you know, much, many, many, many years down the road, she eventually post-college found her way to Willow Creek. And actually through the ministry of Willow Creek, she ends up coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable, remarkable transformation story. And if she were here telling her own story, what she would say is, my life is fundamentally different. I am, I'm not the person I used to be. God has radically changed my life. I found out that he is the way, he is the truth, and there's so much incredible life in him. But one of the things I really loved about her story is she talked about her childhood. As she looked back, she said, even when I was participating in the Hindu faith under the guidance of my parents, I can now look back and see that God was active in my life, that God was reaching out to me, that God was drawing me closer to him, that God was protecting me in ways that I can't even begin to describe to you, that God was at work in my life before I even knew that he was God. It reminds me of, a, of another moment uh, in my journey. I, I, was, I was flying back in town. I don't even remember where I was traveling to, but I flew back into Midway Airport, and I do what you do when you land Midway Airport. I quickly called an Uber to help me get home. And I remember when I called the Uber, the name of the Uber driver comes up, and the name was Muhammad, and I didn't have to really make a lot of assumptions to probably assume that he was a part of a different faith perspective. And I remember he picked me up, and we have, you know, about a 45-minute drive from Midway Airport back to uh, the area in which I live, and I just struck up a conversation with him. And I just kind of started asking about who he is, where he grew up, what his story was like, and he told me he grew up in the Middle East, uh, he, he told me he, he grew up in the Islamic faith, and I just started uh, being inquisitive and asking questions about it. And so I asked him what that was like and, and what that meant to him and, and what his participation was in it. I asked him uh, a, a little bit about how his faith impacts his own journey, just being inquisitive. Well, eventually we got almost toward home and I rerouted it because I remembered I forgot something in the office. And so I had him drop me off at the church that I was serving at at the time. And so as the location shifted, he asked me, he goes, do you work there? I said, yeah, I actually do. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And he goes, no kidding. I said, yeah. And then the conversation shifted in a way that I didn't expect. He said, well, do you have a minute? Can I ask you some questions? I said, sure, fire away. And he said, for years and years and years, I've had this recurring dream. And there's images of crosses in this dream. And there's a man who's the kindest, most compassionate man I've ever met who's a part of this dream. He says, I know it's Jesus, but I don't know anything about him. Can you tell me? And I said, no, I don't have any time to do that. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I said, of course. So I got to share with him. 
I would love to tell you that he came to faith in that Uber. He didn't that day. But I can tell you this. God had been at work in his life for a long time ever, ever, before I ever got in that Uber. And I'm under the impression that even though I was not able to get him to surrender his life to Jesus on that day, I believe in a God who will continue to work in his life long after that day. God is a gracious God, a good God, who continues to reveal himself to people to pull us out of hiding and into a relationship with himself. And what I think has always been true, I think is true today. I think that maybe there are some of us, those of you watching online, those of you at one of our Willow locations, I think that there are people with us today that today is your day that God is going to draw you into relationship with himself through Jesus. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And I don't say that in an arrogant way. I actually say that with incredible humility. Because the reason we need humility to say that is because it is not about what I do. What I do is insufficient. It's about what he has done. And so if you're a sinner, which by the way, we all are, but if you're a sinner, and you say, you know, I'm not the husband I wish I could be. I'm not the wife I want to be. I'm not the parent or the child I wish I was. Sometimes I don't make the decisions that even meet my own standard. I have a hard time controlling my mouth. There's an invitation for you today. And the invitation is, it's not just about what you do, it's about what he has done for you. And I wanna give you the chance to surrender yourself not to a set of propositions. I wanna give you the opportunity to surrender your life to the person of Jesus who loves you, who's been pursuing you, that he might say, Ali, Ali, Oxenfree, come out of hiding and into a relationship that's marked with forgiveness and grace and love. Come back to me. Here's what I believe. Because it's about a relationship with a person, I believe that when we truly follow Jesus, and by the way, that's the invitation. It's a terrifying invitation. But the invitation is to to follow and to follow him. And I'm convinced if we if we don't just believe a certain way, if we if we truly follow him, it will it will make your life better. It will make you better at life. Maybe I'll say it this way. He will make your life better. He will make you better at life. Would you yield your life to him? 
I want to create the opportunity again for anybody to say yes to the invitation of Jesus. Whether you're here in person, whether you're, you're watching us online at one of our Willow locations, I want to invite every single person to give the opportunity to yield your life to the person of Jesus. And so if you allow me to, I just ask that you bow your heads. And I'm just going to say a simple prayer. If you want to give your life to Jesus, you can just simply pray the words of this prayer with me. You can do the, so silently, you can do so out loud, whatever serves you. But would you pray this prayer with me? God, we love you. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose again. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me overcome the challenges I'm up against. Jesus, I give my life to you. I choose to follow you. In Christ's name. With every head bowed, with every eye closed at all of our locations, if you made the decision to follow Jesus, would you just express that commitment by just putting your hand in the air, just acknowledging to God, God, I am committed to follow you. His hands go up around this room. His hands go up across all locations. Father, I just ask that those who are reaching out to you in this moment, you'd reach back to them. Remind us that you love us, that you care for us, that you've been pursuing us. Thank you for drawing us to relationship with your son, Jesus. God, we pray that in his name. Amen. Amen. Can we give it up for those who made spiritual decisions today?